Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding, His church is growing. It's not what's the purpose of my life, it's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay curious, think well, advance good. This is Q. But there's even very large-scale organizations that oversee massive projects in which I've asked the people, do you realize that what you're doing does real harm? And the, the answer I've gotten is, yeah, it doesn't really matter to us if we wipe out a village as long as we get to show people that Jesus loves them. Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons for this week. I'm Paul Perot from Faith Radio with Gabe. And today, if helping the poor and leading them to Jesus, whether in our communities or abroad, is important to you, you'll want to stay with us for the next half hour. That provocative little intro we heard was from Brian Fickard, one of our guests today. And we have a lot to talk about today, so I want to get out of your way, Gabe. And you've known Brian for quite a while. Tell us about him. Many, many years ago, Brian Fickard wrote a book called When Helping Hurts. It was just one of those books that you started to see everywhere. Every church was reading it because it helped people understand this idea of when we try to help people who are poor, if we do it in the wrong way, we actually keep them in it. We don't really provide a sustainable way out. He gave a cute talk on this that just helped illuminate this for people. But now he has come together with Dr. Kelly Capick, and he's written this amazing new book called Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream. And what I love about this project and why we wanted to talk with him today is he's really getting at how our Western ideas, our ideas of American dream, success, wealth, how it interplays with the church and the way the church thinks about what the solution is for the people they're trying to serve in their community and kind of helps us unpack the next level of this conversation that began with just helping those in a positive, renewable, sustainable way to now, what is the mindset that's going on in the church, and how can we actually think well in our discipleship about how Christians are coming at this? So listen in now with Dr. Kelly Capick and Brian Figger. So great to be with both of you today. Thank you for taking the time. And I just want to jump right in, because Brian, you were with us at Q, did an amazing talk on what we called first world poverty that people can still access now and watch on Q Media. But this new book, I mean, it seems like you've jumped from the idea of poverty alleviation to questioning the American dream, and I think it's bold. I think it's important. Tell us more about why you wrote this book. Uh, about 10 years ago, I was privileged to co-author the book, When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor and Ourselves. And a lot's happened uh, in the decades since that book came out. And the first is this. So, so many people came up to us with very specific questions. You know, they were working with a particular tribe in a particular part of Africa. They wanted to know exactly what to do in that situation. And, and we realized that there's no way we could ever make uh, the laundry list of exactly what to do in each specific situation. Of course, we ourselves didn't even know. And we, we realized what people really were looking for was wisdom. Is they were looking for wisdom and an overall story to guide what they were doing in every situation. So we felt compelled to go a little bit deeper than when helping hurts to do a better job of articulating the kind of overarching story to create a sense of what the goal is and how that goal can be achieved. Then a second thing happened. Um, 
you know, a lot's happened in the United States in the past decade. It, it, it feels like we've lost a sense of what the story is for ourselves. We've lost a sense of what does human flourishing look like? How is such flourishing achieved? We see evidence of this uh, all over our society, right? We've, we've got increasing incomes and wealth, and yet the family is falling apart, communities are falling apart, the political process is uh, in gridlock. There's a sense in which we've lost our own story. We've lost our own sense of what the good life is and how it can be achieved. And then there's a third piece. And the kind of the irony is that when we work with the poor, our implicit assumption is that we want to make them just like us, that the goal is for uh, Uganda to become like the United States. It's kind of ironic because we're not that happy right now. So there's kind of an irony here. Why would we want to ask the poor to join into our story when we're not enjoying our story that much ourselves. And so this book is really trying to get at this idea of story. What is God's story for human flourishing? How does God typically go about achieving that story, both for poor people and for ourselves? Well, I love that you mentioned the good life. That is the big question that human beings are consistently asking and answering in a bunch of different ways. But that is the big question, right? What is true human flourishing? What's the best way to live? You know, it's not that people are all clamoring to come to the U.S. right now. They're kind of going, man, maybe I don't have it so bad in my current context. Or or when you visit these these villages that I know you've spent a lot of time in and you see how community life is so vibrant and that on the American streets in our neighborhoods, we have nothing like that anymore. You realize something's broken about how we're doing this and and where can that wisdom lead us. It's interesting with the two of you, though, you've got kind of the theology thing covered and the economist thing covered. So what, what is it that economists and theologians learn from one another? <laughs> that, that's a good question. This is, this is Kelly, um, and thanks for having us on. We, we joke, there's nothing that we can learn from each other. Really, but <laughs> <laughs> the truth is, it's, it's really nice because this is all God's world. So in the last 200 years, there's been a lot of pressures for academic disciplines to get separated. And in some ways, that kind of mirrors our fragmented lives so that we think, well, if we just make more money, we'll be happier. And then maybe we might ask meaning of life questions on a Sunday or at the bar with our friends at night. But connecting deep questions about life, purpose, what it all means, that doesn't tend to get integrated very well. So it's been great to have Brian and I are working together to try and help people think, yeah, what does becoming whole look like? Because when we talk about poverty alleviation, what we're really just talking about is what does it mean to be human? And that fundamentally, from a Christian perspective, to be human is to be in communion with God, communion with other humans, and in communion with the earth, and even having a right relationship with yourself. And we hold to this kind of Christian idea that, that sin has affected all of those relationships, and so when we deal, whether we're dealing with material poverty or some kind of mental poverty, <laughs> different kinds of issues that affect all of us, emotional difficulties, relational difficulties, that we want to address people holistically and that the gospel, the good news of Christ and the power of his spirit affects all of those. So we're not just trying to have people with less material means get more. We want them to be holistic, to be renewed in the relation with God, with their neighbor, mm -hmm. with the earth, and with themselves. And that's the exact same hope we have for people who are affluent. <laughs> it's not a different hope. 
And that's part of what we're trying to tease out is that we're all in need together. Yeah. What Kelly just did was explain to what an economist can learn from a theologian. He did address the flip side. <laughs> but uh, what, what he did there is really at the heart of this project because, you know, as an economist, um, my discipline has a particular understanding of what the goal is and of how that goal can be achieved. Economists think of human beings as fundamentally rational, material, autonomous agents. And so human flourishing to an economist looks like uh, greater consumption. And the way to get that greater consumption is through uh, economic growth that leads to higher incomes so that we can buy more stuff. The problem is that that understanding of the human being is fundamentally flawed. And so I have found it really important to tap into theological resources in general and to Kelly in particular, who's an expert on a biblical anthropology, to understand more deeply what is the human being actually? Uh, how has God wired this creature? Uh, and, and, and what does flourishing look like for this creature? And the reality of it is, the Bible's answers are very, very, very different from those of my discipline. Mm -hmm. And so I actually have to undo my PhD. Uh, it's a very painful process, but there's a sense in which I have to undo uh, what I've learned academically and the way that that's impacted my life personally mm -hmm. and professionally. It's actually done a lot of harm to me as a person. So this, this larger biblical narrative of the human being is not just material, but spiritual, material, and relational really affects how economic life ought to be studied, but also how we should just live uh, day to day. Just hearing, Kelly, your description where you know many people may be listening right now don't remember historically how theology was taught. I mean, in Harvard and in our Ivy League schools when they were founded, I mean, theology was the center and all of these other disciplines came out of that. So it was connected. It all, all of life made sense. But you're right, as it's been deconstructed, as those things have really disintegrated in terms of an educational model, people don't see the whole picture anymore. And you're having to kind of put it back together. But I think people are hungry for that. They're realizing that this isn't working. These The materialist view of me as a human being and that all I care about is the physical and that there isn't the spiritual dimension is one that I think most people are coming to the realization is not true. They might not know how to make sense of it anymore or know who to trust to tell them. They certainly aren't necessarily trusting the church right now, but I think the work that you're doing does this. Like in a beautiful way, you start to bring all of that together and help us kind of reckon with some things that maybe some false assumptions we've been fed a little bit, educated on in our normal academic system, and now we're needing to kind of relinquish and, and relearn. Is that part of why you think the church in, in the U.S. right now is having a little bit of a hard time kind of disentangling, you know, from, from just this American view or the American dream? Well, yeah, and I really like how you put that. As you were talking, I was just thinking, I think a great example of this is the millennials. So everyone loves to bash on millennials, but I'm a little suspicious of a fair amount of the bashing because I actually think some of what happens, you know, anytime you talk in categories, it's problematic. But part of the millennial thing is they're kind of saying, I'm not actually interested in making the same decisions I've seen parents and grandparents make because they were working 85 hours a week. They have no relationships. I look at my dad. He has no friends. They're making different decisions that economically sometimes seem problematic. But often they're choosing community. I mean, I think about when my wife and I, when we went off to college and got married and the thought of going home and working wasn't even an, like it never occurred to us. And now at Covenant College where I teach, we have these really thoughtful students who will make decisions about where they're going to work, 
not based on a career path, but on relationships. Mm -hmm. That's just fundamentally different. And that's because they're longing. They can sense the problems. Yeah, no, you're right. You know, one of the things I'm concerned about, frankly, is when you start to see the data on how much the next generation doesn't see belief in God as important, you start to realize how much the world can disintegrate before them because they, there's not a deeper foundation for meaning, for purpose, for what life's about. It starts to be something that they have to discern for themselves, and they're relying on themselves to do this. And once you start doing that and you realize we're not always that rational, right, in how we think, even though we're designed as rational beings, we don't always make those decisions in rational ways. It, it starts to account, I think, for some of the despair and some of what we're seeing arise in related to suicide, related to, you know, people really distracting themselves in significant ways and coping in, in just different ways today. So, so when we think about the next generation, yes, complete positive in the sense that they're thinking relationally, they want to have meaning and purpose, but in some senses, we're also losing the very foundations where they can truly find it, which is why work like what you're doing is just so important. One of the terms you talk about, evangelical Gnosticism, it's pretty loaded. Tell us a little bit more, help our listeners better understand Gnosticism in general and how that's applying to the current kind of state of Christianity. Yeah, so you know, Gnosticism is just this idea that goes back at least to the time of the early church in which the spiritual is deemed as what really matters and the physical doesn't really matter or is even considered evil. And uh, what Daryl Miller has argued is that the church in America has really bought into sort of an evangelical version of that. What that looks like is that we kind of really value the spiritual. We kind of downplay the material a bit. The way that, that plays into our church life and into our discipleship and our evangelism and even our poverty aviation strategies is that the goal is really to get the soul beamed up to heaven. Everything is centered around that. And there's not really much of a story for the body. And uh, this shows up in poverty alleviation work all the time. Uh, every, every one of our listeners, if they're attending a church, attends a church that has a really dumb ministry. I, I know that's not politically correct to say, but just true. There, there, there's some ministry that the church is doing that really doesn't make any sense in terms of helping people to truly flourish, to be empowered, to, to all that needs to be human. If you ask the people involved in that ministry, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you ladling soup, for example, for 30 straight years? You're seeing exactly the same people show up for 30 years. They never change. What you'll often hear is something like this. Yeah, I know my ministry isn't really doing any good in terms of empowering them towards wholeness, but I just want to show them the love of Christ because if they can just understand that Jesus died on the cross to save them from their sins, they'll accept him as their savior and their soul can go to heaven someday uh, when they die. And so we, we actually are willing to engage in really dumb poverty alleviation strategies with the goal of showing the love of Christ where that love is simply to get the soul to heaven. Uh, and so we do this at a very local level in our churches, but there's even very large scale organizations that oversee massive projects, which I've asked the people, do you realize that what you're doing does real harm? And the, the answer I've gotten is, yeah, it doesn't really matter to us if we wipe out a village as long as we get to show people that Jesus loves them. Hmm. And so it's really reducing the human being and even the creation to simply the human soul. Hmm. And so we kind of reduce the gospel to uh, worshiping God on Sunday, but then Monday through Saturday, we don't have a story. Yeah. Christ isn't really Lord of the material realm. He's not really Lord of Monday through Saturday. And so we end up defaulting, ironically, to the materialism of the world. Mm -hmm. And so, so we've got this kind of funny bifurcation we, we, that we're living out. 
get the soul to heaven because that's what really matters. Right. And then just pursue the American dream Monday through Saturday because we, we don't have another story for that one. And so we actually right. end up as highly materialistic people, even though we say the material doesn't matter. I love that you press into this. I think your work with when helping people hurts has just been so instrumental for people waking up to that and for churches waking up to that. That's been the central mission of Q for the last 15 years is helping people better understand that we're living in this full story, not this truncated story. It's just about getting out of here and escaping to heaven, but it's out. It's actually about what are we called to be doing here? How are we actually renewing things, restoring things, getting them back into God's original design? I mean, one of the things you talk about in the field guide to becoming whole are the five causes of poverty. Give us those in short order so that everybody listening can, can understand that. And then I've got a follow-up question for you on that. Each one obviously just deserves unpacking, but we don't really have time for that. But I'll, I'll take you through them fairly quickly. The first is false gods or erroneous stories of change, right? This kind of biblical idea, we become what we worship. If your God is materialism, even though you don't realize it, we become that and it distorts our lives. That can affect affluent and uh, people who are materially poor. And we could talk more about that. But second is destructive formative practices. If the example I would use is if, if your whole life you grew up being told you're stupid and ugly, you are being formed in very problematic ways. And if you've been told your whole life you're a failure, you're never going to do anything, if you only meet that individual when they're 20, and you say, hey, you're without work. Why don't you go work at Amazon for $15 an hour? Why aren't you doing that? But you find out they started working at Amazon for two weeks and, and a boss got mad at them and they stopped coming back. And you think, that's so, why would you do that? You need to work. Hmm. But you, you don't understand. We are, we are complete people. The third is broken systems at both the community and macro level. What are kind of systemic problems, whether they're, they're racist or otherwise? We need to be honest and address those. The fourth is broken people. Our problem is not just sin out there. We have sin inside ourselves. And uh, so we don't want to idealize people who are materially poor. They're sinners too. Um, and they get sinned against. And then the fifth is demonic forces. It's, it's funny. Uh, Rudolf Bultmann, the famous 19th century or 20th scholar, thought, we have light bulbs and electricity. Who can believe in the devil? And yet he was a, a, a German theologian in the midst of World War II and the rise of of the Nazi movement. And you think, well, I actually don't have much trouble believing in demonic forces when I think about Auschwitz. So mm -hmm. those five are things that we would want to talk about and unpack. Yeah. I'm curious from the economist perspective, I've seen, I've seen a lot of articles and people talking about what it takes to get out of poverty and be in specifically in America, like in the middle class. And there, there, there's some other rules thrown around. I'm curious if your read on this is that, yeah, that's pretty relevant. But one of them is just graduating high school is an important step. The second one was making sure you don't have children before you're married. It like is, is one key to knowing that you're actually not going to be poor. When you think about just those kind of pop statistics that talk about that kind of data, does that figure into how you're thinking about poverty as well, like decisions and choices that are made? Completely. So, you know, one of the things that Kelly mentioned was this idea of destructive formative practices. Uh, we often engage in practices that are not for human flourishing. Things like dropping out of school, for example, uh, would not be consistent with human flourishing. Pregnancy out of wedlock is um, one of the primary causes of poverty. And so uh, very much there are practices that shape us that are conducive to 
material poverty, but we want to see those practices in the larger context of what are the systems that are involved in uh, encouraging people in those directions? What are the uh, false gods and stories of change that are present? Uh, how is Satan at work? And so we, we certainly believe that there are practices that are destructive, but we want to see those as part of a larger whole and not reduce poverty to just the personal failures of the poor. That's uh, one factor, but it's not the only factor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the demonic realm. I mean, I appreciate you being so bold and frank to talk about that. But as Christians, obviously, we believe that's real. That's true. There is an enemy that's seeking to bring destruction to us, to devour us, and to not recognize it, I think, fails to recognize the bigger picture of what's happening in our lives, in our world, the things we're actually up against. But, I mean, what strikes me about the whole project and the idea of becoming whole is just this is ultimately about discipleship, right? It's about it's about teaching people the way of Jesus. It's applying it to today. It's giving them some important principles. So as people start to, to do this and read the book and, and maybe in, in churches do ministry with it, how, how is it that they can do ministry in a healthier way? What are some ways that any church leader listening right now can adopt some of these into the way they're thinking about church? Yeah, there's all kinds of practical principles that one can follow in the field guide to becoming whole. But it, I, I actually want to go back, Gabe, to what you just said, because I actually think what you hit on is the fundamental issue. This is an issue of discipleship. Mm -hmm. and, and what are we discipling people into? And, and I would suggest that the first step for the church isn't really to adopt some new technique or some new trick or some new tip. It's actually to uh, re-engage with the biblical story right down to the very question of who is Jesus Christ and why did he come to earth? Because if you ask the typical layperson or even pastor in the United States the simple question, why did Jesus come to earth? What you're going to hear is typically the following. Uh, Jesus came to earth to die on the cross to save me from my sins so that I can be declared righteous before a holy God and my soul can go to heaven someday when I die. And we certainly affirm all of that. The, the Bible uh, talks about the fact that we have a legal problem before a holy God. But what's so interesting is that the start of Jesus' earthly ministry in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, he says he's come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, that that's why he was sent. And that's the overarching framework for all that he is doing. And the kingdom of God is the reign of Christ, uh, in, whereby he's using the power of his death and resurrection to make all things new, to usher in a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth that makes all things new. And it's a different story than the story of the American dream. And until we get that story right, we actually are never going to work amongst the poor properly because it's the fact we haven't really embraced that story and the power of the Holy Spirit in uh, moving us into that story uh, that we're failing amongst the poor and we're failing in our personal life. And so it's not about a few tricks. It's about actually rediscovering the gospel. The goal here is not just, is not merely feeding people who are hungry, but it's also the opposite. People who have money, the goal is not simply that they're financially fine. They need to feast on Christ. Mm. We all need the same things. Yeah, what a great leveling and a, and a great way to conclude our conversation. And there's so much more we can talk about. I want to encourage everybody to read this book. This is one of those books not to just read on your own. It's, it's so important to read this 
with your spouse, maybe with your family, depending on the age of your kids and if they're starting to grapple with some of these concepts, but in a small group with with people that you're maybe doing ministry with or you're involved in something where you're really trying to be a part of restoring and renewing the community. You know, just to link to something you said earlier, that, that the talk that I, uh, you, you had me give a cue really is the precursor to this book. Uh, I was starting to think about these things, was starting to be in dialogue with Kelly about some of these things. And so that cute talk became the launching point for for, for this book and the companion field guide. So it's really all your fault. Yeah. <laughs> well, we love learning together and that's just how this works, isn't it? You just keep unlayering that onion a little more and you keep getting to more core ideas that I think are just so transferable. So just thank you for your faithfulness and we're excited to help more people come to find you and your work. Uh, thanks for having us. Well, you hear how much I really respect the work of these two gentlemen and the deep thinking that they're doing. This is what we're trying to do at Q, help you think well, stay curious, and advance good. Well, we can't truly advance good that's lasting, that's sustainable, if we're not thinking well about it, if it's not rooted theologically, if it's not rooted in the Christian story, where we truly do understand the human being's propensity to do wrong, to sin. And so many times in economics now, there's just no allowance for that. You see, even in our culture, the rise of socialism is a good idea. You look at the next generation who sees that as a good idea. And sure, it, it could be a good idea outside of understanding a human being's propensity to selfishness, to power, to control, to manipulation. And of course, that interferes with any type of economic system. But I love their work because they're helping us think well about all of it, but understanding the Christian perspective. Now, what I want you to do, if you're interested in this, if you're interested in for your church or groups, as I was describing at the end of that conversation, you can actually get a discount on this, 30% off on their materials at moodypublishers.com by using the promo code CHALMERS, C-H-A-L-M-E-R-S. Now, they have two books, Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream, and then also a companion resource called A Field Guide to Becoming Whole, Principles for Poverty Alleviation Ministries. That's the one designed to help your church start to orient towards this kind of thinking. Yeah, I agree. Those are some great resources from Kelly Capick and Brian Fickert. And also some more great resources available on our Q Media platform at qideas.org. A lot of talks not only on the issue of human flourishing and poverty relief, but a whole gamut of important issues and a lot of great talks, a lot of great content at the Q Media platform, qideas.org. Hey, thanks again for joining us for Q Ideas this weekend. And hey, remember to share this with friends and let us know what you think as well, right, Gabe? Tell us what you think about these podcasts. Are these important to you? Are you enjoying them? Are there more topics that you would like to hear? Feel free to email us anytime at info at QIdeas to give us even more feedback and ways we can make this better for you. But thank you for being a part of this community as we continue to stay curious, think well, and advance good. This program is made possible in partnership with Faith Radio and Northwestern Media. Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make your gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. 
To avoid missing future editions of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or on your podcast player. And thank you for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the impact of Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons.